Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 36. I will be reading the whole chapter. Isaiah 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there he came out, and there came out to him Elkanan, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebnah the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is he not the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, and if you are able on your part to set riders on them, how can you repulse a single captain amongst the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord, is it without the Lord, I have come up against this land to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Elkanim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to, to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of your own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Apad? Where are the gods of Serevim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered the lands from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Elkanah, son of Hilkiah, 
who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the rapture. That'd be great if you could keep your Bibles open uh, at that passage. We're going to spend a bit of time thinking about it and listening to what God has to teach us from it. Uh, Let's pray for his help to understand his word now. Please pray with me. Father God, thanks so much that you speak to us through all of your scriptures, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, We thank you that it all teaches us about why Jesus is so important. So Father, please teach us today so that we might respond to Jesus rightly. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, sometimes Christians show extraordinary faith and it all goes wrong. Have you noticed that? Sometimes Christians show extraordinary faith and it all goes wrong. Let me give you some examples. It takes a lot of faith to do this. See those guys marching with those signs? Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. The Lord God returns, worldwide earthquake. It takes a lot of faith to march around cities with that kind of dedicated date. This is when the world's going to end kind of sign. Um, the people who are doing it are followers of a televangelist from California named Harold Camping. And Harold had apparently found lots of clues in the Bible about when Judgment Day would come. He then did the, <coughs> excuse me, he then did the, the maths and he proclaimed that the world would come to an end through a massive series of earthquakes on May the 21st, 2011, uh, from 6pm as each new time zone came into their 6pm time. Now, you can imagine how much fun the, uh, the, religious, sorry, the non-religious had when that date came and went and we're all still here. You can imagine. Um, this photo was taken before May 21st. Sorry, back to the previous one. photo was taken before May 21st. The article was written after May 21st. Now, people all over the world actually believe that God would bring Judgment Day. At 6pm on May the 21st, 2011, people trusted that God would do it. People had faith that God would do it. And yet it all came to nothing. All that faith down the drain. All of that trust come to nothing. How could so much faith be so wrong? Let me give you an even more disturbing example. This poor young girl lost her life in Brisbane last year because her parents... And their church had faith. Elizabeth Rose Struths was eight years old and she had type 1 diabetes. You can imagine how much she and her parents wanted healing. They believed, they trusted that God could heal her. So last June, they stopped her insulin medication and prayed for healing for six days. They had faith that God would heal Elizabeth and they prayed that he would, even as she died in front of them. What a terrible tragedy. And later this year, there will be a big court case about that tragedy, where Elizabeth's father and the pastor of the church will be charged with murder, and others will be charged with lesser charges. How come faith sometimes goes so wrong? Are these examples a failure of faith? Or is this not really Christian faith, but just a a misguided, counterfeit kind of faith? 
Today we're going to think about what true faith is, the nature of true, true faith, and we're going to learn from um, Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. So we're at point one, the shape of the book. Our section today brings us right to the centre of the whole book of Isaiah, but don't get all mathematical about it. This chapter is not the exact middle chapter of the book. This centre is more learned by English than maths, if that makes sense. So these chapters are in the centre of the book because they are the bridge or the pivot between the two big sections of the book. And so it's English skills, not math skills, that's going to help you find this, uh, recognise the centre here. So please turn, have a look at your Bibles. I want you to look at the, the, pas- the chapter before our passage and the chapters of our passage. So looking at chapter 35 and chapter 36, and I'm sorry, if you're working from your phone, this is going to be harder. So um, look, look over the shoulder of someone with a real Bible next to you, and this is why we love you bringing real Bibles, or one of the reasons why we love you be, be bringing real Bibles. Can you see chapter 35 is laid out differently to chapter 36? Pretty clear, isn't it? The way that chapter 35 is laid out is the way that a lot of Isaiah so far has been laid out, and it's laid out to tell us that that is Hebrew poetry. That's what we've been reading. Most of Isaiah's prophecy has been written in Hebrew poetry. But as we move into chapter 36, this centre of the book, you can see that we've changed genre. We've changed to narrative prose. For, and it's going to dominate for um, really four chapters, these central pivot chapters that divide the book. Now, we have had some narrative earlier in, in Isaiah in smaller chunks. Um, it comes amidst the poetry. But here, four big chapters that are predominantly narrative with just a little bit of embedded poetry uh, within it. Now, the change in layout is really helpful because right at the heart of this book, we have a section that is clearly different. This central section that is predominantly narrative prose takes us to through two different episodes in the life of Hezekiah, one of the really important kings of God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, we're going to look at the first episode today, the first two chapters, chapters 36 and 37. And then after Flex Week, you're going to look at the second two chapters, the next episode, in your Bible study group. So you get the chance to look at all four chapters over the, well, the next couple of weeks. But I have a question for you to get you thinking about the bigger picture the meta-narrative of this book. Here's the question on the screen. What would you expect from differentiated chapters at the centre of this book? If you want to have a chat with the person next to you, what are you expecting with this strange chapter, four, four chapters in the middle of the book? Why? What are, you, what are you expecting? Go for it. 30 seconds with the person next to you. Um, let's have a think about this. The placement of these chapters suggests that the material that we are looking at today is going to be helpful for understanding the whole book. So let's try and understand them well. We're at point two, a tough situation. King Hezekiah and his fellow Jerusalemites are in a tough situation as this chapter begins. They are in serious trouble. Have a look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. 
How did it get to this? How has it come to this? Hezekiah was one of the better kings to lead God's people, but wrangling a superpower on your doorstep is not easy for anyone. When Hezekiah first took the throne in the southern kingdom of Judah, he took a gamble. He stopped paying tax to the superpower Assyria. And we get a few more details about this uh, situation in the book of 2 Kings, where this same event is also recorded. So have a look at the screen, 2 Kings 18, verses 5 to 7. He, that is Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. There it is. Didn't want to pay the taxes. Decided to rebel against Assyria's king. Now, remember that Assyria by this stage has smashed most of God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel. In about 722, pretty much Assyria wiped the northern kingdom off the map. Then Hezekiah takes the throne in the southern kingdom about seven years later, in about 715 BC. Can you imagine how courageous it was for Hezekiah to rebel against the Assyrian superpower so soon after they'd annihilated the north kingdom? This rebellion was either really courageous or really crazy. As the events in Russia over the past weekend tell you, crazy superpower leaders don't like rebellion. Okay? And so we come to the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign in the chapters we are looking at today. We are in about 701 BC. And that superpower has now captured nearly all of the southern kingdom except Jerusalem. They're on Jerusalem's doorstep, they're ringing a doorbell, and they want to speak with this rebel king, Hezekiah. And the quote that comes to mind is from that great American prophet, Mike Tyson, former heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. I think there's something in that for everyone. Ah, so, the book of Two Kings tells us that Hezekiah capitulated pretty quickly. Let's pick it up from 2 Kings again. Verse 18, uh, sorry, chapter 18, verses 14 to 16. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria of Lachish, say, at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Hezekiah gave all the bling that he had and it still wasn't enough. And that leads us straight into our passage in Isaiah today. As we've read earlier, the king of Assyria... Sennacherib, he sends high-level envoys to speak to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah sends out three of his best PPE graduates to listen. And weirdly, the message from the superpower king is all about trust. Let's pick it up in verses 4 and 5. Chapter 36, verses 4 and 5. 
And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? In whom do you now trust? Upon what are you basing this trust that you rebel against me? Isn't it interesting that right here, right in the centre of the book, we have a chapter that seems to be all about trust, all about faith. That's the question at the centre of the book. And that's the question that should perhaps be at the centre of our lives. In whom do you trust? The messages, the messages of Assyria offer some strong arguments about why the objects of Hezekiah's trust won't save them. First argument, we're going to fly through these pretty quickly. First argument, maybe you're trusting in the other big guy in the neighbourhood, Egypt. But the messengers say, Egypt can't save you. Argument two, the Lord doesn't even want to save you. Have a look at uh, chapter 36, verse 7. Chapter 36, verse 7. Uh, where's verse 7 gone? It is there. But it's after verse 6. Thank you for that help. Uh, but, if you say to me, uh, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Can you see what they're saying? The Assyrians are saying that the Lord won't want to save his people because Hezekiah has annoyed God by removing all the places of worship from around the countryside. Argument three is that Assyria could give Judah 2,000 horses, but Judah probably couldn't even come up with enough riders for a cavalry division. And finally, argument four is that the Lord himself has sent Assyria to destroy Judah as part of his judgment. Four strong arguments. Let me put them up on the screen for you. I'm sorry, the one, two, three, four are in black. Um, Egypt can't save you. The Lord doesn't want to save you. 2,000 horses wouldn't save you. The Lord has sent us not to save you. Now, here's, the question, here's my question for you. Which of those arguments do you think are true? We're going to fact check them. You can start with the person next to you. Which arguments do you have doubts about? Are any of them true? Are any of them not true? 30 seconds with the person next to you. See what you've got. The argument about Egypt was probably true at that point. Egypt was a fading superpower at this point and they probably couldn't have helped. Um, the argument about horses was probably also true. Judah did not have much of an army left to fight, let alone riders for a cavalry. Argument four even seems to have some truth to it. Look at what God himself said back in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. It's clear, it's saying God has sent Assyria to do his judging work, even of his own people. I think we have to say argument four is probably not far wrong as well. 
It all comes down to argument two. Does God really not want to help his people because they tore down all his holy shrines? Now, this is where being an amateur theologian can get you into a bit of trouble. Have you heard of this um, old proverb? A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Have you heard it? All right, that's what we're going to be working on. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You see, the king of Assyria knows that Hezekiah tore down all of the various worship places where God's people had been worshipping out in the countryside and on the hills and stuff like that. But what he fails to understand is that this action that Hezekiah took, he took it in the first year of his reign, so it was pretty radical. It was exactly what God wanted him to do. God had always spoken in his scriptures that there was only one place where, it, where Israel should come to worship him, to offer their sacrifices. That was in the temple in Jerusalem, and where God symbolically dwelt among his people. So God, but when God's people disobeyed God and set up their own altars and worship places all around the country and worshipped the Lord there, but also worshipped some other dodgy gods as well, those sites were about false worship. They were bad stuff. And so Hezekiah did the right thing when he tore them down. Look at what God said about it in 2 Kings 18, 3 to 5. And he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places, that's what we're talking about, and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, that's different sort of idols of worship. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it, not on the altar in the temple. It was called Nehushtan, I believe. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Amateur theologians usually understand part of the picture, but often the whole picture is a lot more complex. Now, I saw a great modern example of this just this week. You may have heard there's been a big kerfuffle in the news uh, about a visiting preacher who preached a, at the chapel service at Scott's private school, I think in the last week or two. He preached on Proverbs, from what I can understand from the media, so whether that's reliable or not. And I believe he spoke confrontingly about modern sexual attitudes. Um, apparently, some of the teachers walked out and there's been an uproar in the press. Um, and so the Sydney Morning Herald ran this article this week. Uh, I think it's a line from the sermon, love is love, cat food is cat food, somehow. Um, and this is the article. Now, I'm not really interested in the article or even the issue. It's the responses that I was quite interested by. How would people respond to this? And you know what? When you get these responses, you find a lot of amateur theologians having a go, telling us what Jesus was all about. Let me give you an example. Uh, whether his real name is Robert Borton, I'm not sure, but he says, Oh dear, I mistakenly thought this type of rigid, life-denying Calvinism had died with Cromwell. This message is the antithesis of Jesus' philosophy of embracing, empowering and loving all, no matter their story and status. It's part of the picture, isn't it? Young people need a safe environment to explore their sexuality in a respectful and nurturing way. Trivialising a perceived archetype is very damaging and can send a dangerous message to young men about the autonomy of women in particular and others generally. It's easy to pick verses from the Bible to champion a certain viewpoint and miss the overarching philosophy of love and inclusion. 
He's, he's brilliant, isn't he? I don't think he's opened his Bible for 40 years since Sunday school, but he, he's telling us exactly what Jesus is all about. Is he right? Hmm. I don't think so. See, um, if you're fairly new to Christianity, what he's saying is not exactly what the Bible says. It's more of a fairy tale view of what Jesus says, and it does not fit with the truth of the Bible. However, it does fit almost perfectly with modern progressive sexual ethics and secular religion. It's basically people trying to make Jesus say exactly what they want to hear. I want to encourage you not to be an amateur theologian. Please actually read the Bible and listen to what Jesus says truly rather than just inventing a supposed overarching philosophy of Jesus that fits your view of sexual ethics and secular religion. The king of Assyria with his amateur theology has interpreted the facts incorrectly. When Hezekiah removed all those high places from around the country, he was doing what God wanted. And that one little error in Sennacherib's argument may come back to bite him. His envoys, they stand up prominently and they assert to the people of Jerusalem, you guys are in trouble and you should give up now. Come over with us, it'll be so nice. Believe that if you like. But we finish chapter 36 with the people who've been encouraged not to trust in the Lord, but to trust in the Assyrians. The same people refuse to give in and the situation really hangs in the balance. Now, what do you think faith would look like for Hezekiah at this point in this tough situation? Do you think that faith for Hezekiah at this point would be blindly trusting that God would defend his city, Jerusalem, and God would defend his people, those who live in Jerusalem? You know, just have enough faith and and God will save us. Do you think think that's what Hezekiah should uh, decide? I'm not sure that God had promised to save his people at this point in the narrative. So any kind of stubborn, blind faith that God must automatically save his people, I'm not sure that would be a true faith, a true faith response to this situation. See, true faith is trusting in things God has promised to do. Not just trusting that God will do what you want him to do. Faith at this point in the narrative probably looks a lot more like crying out to God in desperation and asking that he might save. And that is what, exactly what Hezekiah does. So we're at point three, God saved the king. Hezekiah's response demonstrates the seriousness of the situation. Have a look at the first two verses of chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, this is a pretty good start from King Hezekiah. He seeks to listen to God's word in the form of Isaiah, the prophet. He humbles himself before God in repentance. Good, good start. This is textbook response in a hard situation like this. In a sense, 
what Hezekiah is doing is throwing himself on God's mercy. Now, I thought I'd ask you, what do you tend to do in a tough situation? What do you tend to do? Do you double down on your own strength, your own ingenuity, your own intelligence? Or do you throw yourself on God's mercy and and seek God's help? Well, Hezekiah gets a very favourable word from God through his prophet. It's there in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. What amazing news to hear. Not easy to believe, I imagine, but great to hear. God promises that he's going to take the king of Assyria home and deal with him in his own backyard. And then we get some strange little details that are a little hard to interpret. I want to ask you, what do you think is going on in these verses? Let's read um, chapter 37, verses 8 to 13, and particularly verses 8 and 9. What's going on here? The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left, Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhakar, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sephavain, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? See, um, it seems to me in those first couple of verses that, well, God doesn't immediately take the king of Assyria back to Assyria. In fact, it almost gets interesting on the battlefield. They seem to win in one place and then there's another front opens up and there's potentially another threat coming in and it's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, And so at that point, the king of Assyria tries for a second time to induce Jerusalem to surrender. Now, um, just before we go past this little battle of Lachish here, there's something really beautiful about this little battle of Lachish. You might not realise this, but you can go to the British Museum today. Maybe not today, but maybe when, you know, it takes a little while to get there. But uh, you can go there and you can find room 10 in the British Museum and you will see an enormous stone carving of the King of Assyria overseeing his troops at this Battle of Lachish. Isn't that beautiful? See, these enormous carved stone pictures lined the walls of the palace back at Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. They celebrated the great battle victories like this one that we're talking about in Lachish right here. Now, of course, British archaeologists cut them all down and took them all back to the new superpowers, uh, you know, capital. And so you can't see them in, uh, in Iraq anymore, but you can see them uh, back at the British Museum Free of charge. There you go. Um, It's a good reminder that we are talking about world history here. 
as we read these passages. We're learning about world history from God's perspective. But back to poor old King Hezekiah, because this would not have been much fun to be in his shoes. God had said he was taking the Assyrians home, but then there's this ongoing skirmish just outside Jerusalem, and the last line of defence at Lachish, well, it looks like it's just about to fall. What would that do to your faith in God's promise? How would you respond? The king of Assyria keeps telling you that no gods of any other nations have been able to stand in his way. Do you trust that Israel's God is different to those empty idols of those other nations? When Hezekiah gets this second message from Sennacherib, he responds with one of the best prayers you will ever read. I'm going to leave you to read it in your own time, but it's a great prayer. Why? Because it focuses on God and his honour rather than Hezekiah and his. And it must flow out of a strong faith and a deep understanding of who God truly is. And Hezekiah had hardly finished praying before God blessed him with a word in response. The, The response is framed as a kind of a word to the king of Assyria, Um, who God has used as his instrument of judgment, but who God will now turn and judge. And again, I'm going to leave you to read it in your own time, but we will cut to the chase as God's word through the prophet reassures King Hezekiah that God will save him. So flick down to uh, near the end of the chapter, verses 31 to 35. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now, what does faith look like now that God has spoken these promises into this situation? Remember, faith is trusting God to do what he has promised to do. And that is exactly what Hezekiah chose to do. Trust God to do what he promised to do. And the passage finishes by reminding us that God keeps his promises and is very worth trusting. Let's, uh, let's finish reading um, the chapter, verses 36 to 38. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. It's... um. It's incredible, isn't it? And if you go to the British Museum, you'll see this story played out on the walls. 
and you'll see that uh, it was quite remarkable that this superpower got to the very gates of Jerusalem, having taken everything else, and then basically turned around and went home. The, per- the people of Jerusalem did not even need to lift a finger in battle. God's got this. All by himself, God sends the Assyrians home. And then he removes their troublesome king. God can be trusted to do what he promises to do. Faith is not trusting that God will do whatever you wish he would do. Faith is trusting that God will do what he promises to do. And that brings us to our last point today. Point four, the God who saves and doesn't. Now this passage reminds us that the true and living God is very different to the empty idols that were worshipped by the nations around Israel. The true and living God can act to change the course of history even when it looks impossible, even when it looks like it cannot possibly happen. God can act to change the course of history. And that means God can be trusted because he hears the prayers of his people and he does act to save them. But that does not mean that God will always save his people. Remember, the Assyrians have ransacked the rest of the promised land already as God's chosen instrument of judgment. Think about all those other Israelites in all of those other parts of the nation. They may have been ignoring God and rejecting God, but they probably cried out to God for salvation in their time of need. And God did not save those cities to the north. And even though God saved Jerusalem at this point in their history in 701 BC, the same God, after another hundred years of rebellion and sin from his people, did not save the same city in 586 BC when the new superpower on the block, the Babylonians, were his chosen instrument of judgment. God saved then but didn't save then. God saved then, but didn't save then. And do you know that your salvation comes about from one of those situations? See, our salvation through Jesus Christ came from a similar situation where God saved then and didn't save then. You see, right back near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's a really interesting uh, little event that takes place in Luke chapter 4. Um, where Jesus is in his hometown and he preached in the synagogue and, well, it didn't go down well. And look what happened, Luke 4, 28 to 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose out and drove him, that's Jesus we're talking about, out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's, it's God's salvation almost just, oh, you know, just walked through them. Because it wasn't time. God saved his son from death in Luke 4. But then God didn't save his, the same son from death by crucifixion in Luke 23. Saved then, but not saved then. 
Sometimes God saves and sometimes God does not save. And yet God is working out all his purposes through all the events of history. And your salvation depends on both the salvation and the non-salvation of Jesus Christ. Because God, sorry, because God did not save his son from the cross, you and I can repent of our sins and be forgiven by God. And because God did save his son out of death through resurrection three days later, you and I can have a relationship with a living Lord Jesus. Can you see that your salvation depended upon the non-saving of Jesus and the saving of Jesus? True faith is not just trusting God to do whatever you want him to do. True faith is trusting God to do what he has promised to do. So even if you have incredible faith, enormous faith, that God is going to make you rich and successful and always physically healthy, that is not true Christian faith because God has not promised to do those things for you. It is what makes those stories we started out with today so tragic. God has not promised to reveal the date of Jesus' return for World Judgment Day. God has indeed promised that the date has been set and is coming soon. But God has explicitly said that no one will know the time or the date. We need to listen to God and trust the things that he has spoken. And sadly, God hasn't promised to physically heal every little girl who is sick. God has blessed us with wonderful medication and a great health system in Australia. And God does give great healing through those things and even sometimes through more miraculous things as well. But true faith is not expecting God to heal when he has made no such promise to do so this side of heaven. So I want to encourage you to please keep listening to what God has truly promised. For example, God has promised to never let go of you when you trust in the Lord Jesus. God has promised that he will keep you safe in Jesus to the end. They are promises that you can bank on. God's made those promises. He will keep those promises. But God has also promised that suffering and persecution will come your way if you trust in the Lord Jesus. They are also things that God has promised and you can bank on them happening. And there are all kinds of other promises that God has made in Scripture and that you will be wise to put your trust in. True faith is trusting God to do what he has promised to do. And that is the only faith that is truly worth having. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this amazing uh, couple of chapters that really do push us to think about uh, the way that you save your people and the way that you sometimes don't save your people. Father, please help us to be people who have true faith that is in the things you have promised alone. We pray that at other times we might cry out in prayer and ask for your help. But our Father, we pray that we would not do so presumptuously when we haven't got promises from you to bank on. Father, please help us to have the kind of faith that really does trust you to do the things that you've promised. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.